Everybody said. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. So I have a list that kind of over the years I've compiled of my absolute favorite songs. It's like 10 to 15 tracks total. And, and I'll say this, that probably about like 16 of the 15 songs are Jimmy Eat World songs um, because they're indisputably the most important band of all time. And we can talk afterwards if you disagree and need to repent of that. Um, but, but there's a song on my list of just favorite songs written by a Canadian band called Stars. Uh, and the, the title of the song is super morbid. Uh, the title is Your Ex-Lover is Dead, which sounds like just a ray of sunshine, doesn't it? Uh, the reality is that the song itself, topically, isn't quite as bleak as the name would imply, but it's not a happy song. Uh, basically, it recounts the story of these two people who have had a lengthy romantic relationship in the past. We'll call them Paul and Susie, although their names aren't actually in the song. Uh, and Paul and Susie are introduced by a third party to one another as strangers. The third party says, oh, Paul, do you know Susie? Uh, and what follows in the song is kind of the fallout of this experience as they think about both the joy and the pain of this long relationship that they had together uh, and kind of the effect of being reintroduced to one another and what's this done, what this has done to them emotionally. We're now in our second week of a series we began on the book of 2 Corinthians, and we will spend months in this book. It is called 2 Corinthians, but it is not Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. It's just the second letter that we have. In fact, Paul has a lengthy and a storied history with this church. He's been involved with the Corinthians for almost five years, and there is joy and there is pain that has come with that. And I fear that if we don't know the background of this book, uh, then we'll be like the third party in that song, completely unaware of the incredible history that has transpired between these two parties. So the Corinthian church is founded around 50 AD. That's documented in Acts chapter 20. Uh, sometime after its founding, Paul writes them a letter, uh, just encouraging them uh, to live out their faith in a culture that is incredibly hostile to it. And the Corinthians completely misunderstand his letter. Paul gets word that they misunderstood the first letter, which has not been preserved in the New Testament. And so he writes a second letter, which in your Bible is called 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he corrects their misunderstandings. Uh, he also uh, warns them and admonishes them to repent of some things that he's heard that are going on in the church. One such thing is that there's a man who's sleeping with his mother or his stepmother, and they're very proud of this fact. And he basically says to them, what are you thinking? Not even the pagans think this is cool. Why are you celebrating this? Uh, so he calls them to repentance. He tries to correct their, their misunderstanding. And then he actually basically says this, he, not in so many words, but he implies uh, that they just don't understand what it means to live like Christians. They don't understand what the Christian life is. And so he gives them this offer. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He basically invites the Corinthians to be his apprentices, not that they're training to be apostles, as if that's something you can go to school for, uh, but they're training uh, to learn what it looks like to be Christians. And so he says, it seems like you don't get it. Imitate me. And he sends the letter off, and they do not take it well. So Paul visits in person. 
And by the time he gets to the church in Corinth, the Corinthians have completely rejected his teaching, they've rejected his leadership, and they found new apostles. Not any of the 11 or the 12 that Jesus commissioned, just people kind of floating around saying, I'm an apostle, I have this letter that says I am. And so they levy these criticisms at Paul when he comes to visit them in person as to why they reject him now. They don't accept his leadership or his teaching. Uh, The first one, and I think you'll notice this with all of them, But the first criticism is something that is not unlike what you would hear in the church today. They basically say to Paul, the way that you write, um, the way that you construct your letters is very thoughtful. You're very elegant. You're very eloquent. You're actually kind of intimidating, but you're a boring speaker. You're not very good at teaching in person. You're not tall and imposing. You're short and chubby. Uh, You stumble over your words. You don't use great illustrations. They say your letters make you sound very imposing, but you in real life are entirely boring. And we would rather find somebody who's more interesting. Now, the reality is uh, that we probably would not even be able to number the sheer amount of Christians who have been sitting under the teaching of a man who loves the Lord, who labors over his word, who desires that his people would grow in their knowledge of God, and they left because they thought he was boring. Not because he was wrong, but just because he was boring. And they have instead gone to people who um, prostitute the word of God and twist it to say things it doesn't say, but they're way more interesting and funny. And so this criticism of Paul is not out of place in our modern church. They offer another criticism to him. They say, you haven't performed enough miracles. These other apostles that we found, they're doing miracles left and right, man. It's crazy. You only did a few. Which I guess kind of further contributes to the fact that they think Paul is boring. Not only are you a pretty bad speaker, but you're also not doing a whole lot of miraculous things like the people that we've found are which is, again, not uncommon in our day and age, that we so often miss that when you and I, as the people of God, gather together, there is a miracle taking place even by your presence in this room, and it is that people from incredibly divergent socioeconomic, political, racial backgrounds are gathered together by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. That those of you who've put your faith in Jesus in this room have moved from being enemies of God to being considered his sons and his daughters and your names have been written in the book of life. What could be more miraculous than that? But they miss it. They want more. And the last, and I think what would probably be the most hurtful if it were levied at me, the most hurtful charge is, is that they basically say that you suffer too much to actually be an apostle. They've taken seriously what Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And they've said, well, what would we be imitating? You get shipwrecked, you get beat up, you're flogged, you were almost stoned to death at one point, uh, you've been thrown in prison, the Jews despise you, the Gentiles mock you. I think we'll find somebody who's more fun to imitate. We'll find the guy with the white picket fence and the two and a half kids and the manicured lawn and we'll imitate them. That seems a little bit more pleasant. But they take it a step further, and you might hear this today on any televangelist in the world. Jesus came that you would have life and have it in abundance. So if you are not killing the game right now and having your best life now, you either don't know Jesus or aren't doing what he wants you to do. This is their criticism of Paul. If you were really called by God, all these bad things wouldn't happen to you. And these bad things aren't happening to these other apostles, so we're going to follow them instead. And none of this is uncommon to what we would hear in the church today. 
So Paul writes a third letter, which has also been lost. It's called the tearful letter. And in the third letter, he begs them to repent, to turn from their sin, to return to the biblical model of leadership, to submit to the apostles that Christ has designated to govern his church. He pleads with them, and most of them do repent. Not all of them, but most of them. But it causes a totally different problem, because now they turn on the people who turned them against Paul. And so now the church is divided again. And so with all of this as the background, with all of this baggage between these two parties, Paul picks up his pen and he writes 2 Corinthians, which is actually 4 Corinthians. And his hope here is is so complex that I don't think we can totally do justice to it. But but part of his hope uh, is that these people would no longer turn on each other. Uh, that they would forgive the ones who led them astray and and bring them back in. Another part of his hope is that they would begin to recognize that, listen, suffering is not the opposite of the Christian life. You follow a man who Scripture calls the man of sorrows. He died on a cross. How, How would you expect that suffering would not be somehow a portion of what your life in following Christ might be like? But what Paul doesn't want to do here is just wallow in misery. This isn't a pity party. This isn't a downer of a letter. He wants us to recognize, he wants the Corinthians to recognize that just as Jesus suffered, you should expect to suffer. But just as Jesus rose in the hope of the resurrection, you should expect that a part of your Christian life will not just be suffering, but it will be hope. And there will be joy. And so he picks up his pen to write Second Corinthians. And I've spent now two months studying this letter. I've kind of scoured the commentaries, read all the church fathers, and uh, really done my due diligence. But, I, but I've also been trying to just read the book itself. I, you know, I think many of us are guilty of reading a lot about Scripture rather than just reading Scripture. And so I've tried to read Second uh, Corinthians a couple times a month. And can I just tell you, that in, this, uh, in our time in the church, it's not a popular letter. It doesn't get preached on all the way through. There's a lot of greatest hits in 2 Corinthians. Uh, that you'll see a line a little bit later. We have these vessels, or we have this treasure in jars of clay. And if you know anything about the Joy FM, jars of clay is a very popular Christian worship band, and I couldn't tell you a single song that they sing, which makes me a bad evangelical. <laughs> but there's a lot of lines that you're going to notice as we walk through this text and you say, that's familiar. But so rarely do we put it in context. And can I tell you what we are missing? This is an incredible section of Scripture. We are fortunate that God has seen fit to give it to us. And we ignore it to our own detriment. It is brutally honest about what the Christian life looks like. But not just in the negative. It is profoundly and emphatically hopeful. And I think that you'll see that tonight as we come to our text for the evening. So if you have your Bibles, do me a favor. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians uh, verse, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And if you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, we have some on the back bookshelf. You're welcome to grab one on your way out and you can keep that. That's our gift to you. So let me read for us what we're walking through this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer 
so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. So I've been a Christian for a long time. I think I've prayed the prayer 40 or 50 times in my youth. So if you want to count the first time I prayed it, it would have been like four years old. So I spent a lot of time around the church. And, and this is just something that I've noticed about the church is when it comes to suffering, when people are walking through difficult painful situations, uh, loss, disease, uh, the failing of a relationship. I think we as the church don't always do a great job of comforting them. And, and it seems like we kind of fall into two different categories. We, we say true things, but we don't say them at the right time or with the right sense of tact. A number of years ago, I was a senior in high school, and, and I had a group of people who I sat with at the lunch table every day. I don't really know why I sat with them because I barely knew them when we started sitting together. Um, but, but we ended up becoming close friends. And there came a point towards the end of my senior year where uh, one of the girls in our lunch table, uh, her father and her brother were on a private plane and the plane went missing. And so she skipped the next day of school because there was a search party looking for her family and you don't really want to take an algebra test when you're thinking about something like that. But her best friend came to school that day and kind of hid her phone from the AP and called her during lunch to see if there was any word. And while she was on the phone with the girl whose father and brother were missing, a word came through that they had found the bodies. And I will never in my life forget the sound of that girl screaming that I could hear through the speaker of the phone. It was so loud. Her friend immediately crumples in devastation, and 16- and 17-year-old high school students have no idea what to do with this. So we sort of kind of look at each other and put our heads down. And and I remember a couple well-meaning guys, I really think that that they meant the best, but they just start going, it'll be fine, things are good, God's God's in control. Um, Yeah, things are good, he works all things together for our good, everything will be all right. Can I just tell you, that didn't help at all. And it's not because it wasn't true. It's not because it's not entirely true that our Lord is sovereign, that he works even the deepest of our pains for our eternal good and our glory or our glorification and for his glory. It's not that it wasn't true. It's just that they needed to shut up and mourn with those who mourn for a second. And so sometimes we say true things at the wrong time, but, but more often than not, we have a lot of pithy sayings that we throw out in the church that just aren't true or biblical. I heard again recently of a woman who lost her son. Suddenly, tragically, in a devastating fashion, and well-meaning people uh, went to her again and again, and they said, it's okay, God's not going to give you anything more than you can handle. God won't give you anything more than you can handle. Obviously, he thinks you can handle this. Now, maybe you've heard this, and maybe you've heard it in an instance of unbelievable loss. You've lost a a friend or a family member, and you are mourning that, and you hear, God won't give you more than you can bear. Uh, Maybe it's been at the death of a relationship that you had hoped would go a long ways with you, the breakup of a romantic relationship or an engagement or anything like that. Uh, Maybe you've heard it as you are in the middle of financial crisis, and you're trying to pay student loans, which so many of us have and know the danger of, and you can't find a job to pay for the loans that you got the college degree with to get the job to pay for the loans. It's a brilliant cycle. Or maybe you've just heard it in something as simple and everyday as trying to survive finals week. Here's the problem. It fits well on a coffee mug. It sounds good on a card with a precious moments googly-eyed character. Uh, It looks great on a wall plaque. It might even sound good in a Facebook status update. But it's not true. And it's not biblical. 
And the greatest wrench in the works of that statement is 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul says, let me read it for you again. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is the Apostle Paul saying that I was so overwhelmed and I was so burdened beyond what my ability to endure was that I lost the will to live, that I despaired of life itself. Many commentators have noted that in the Greek, the, the language that Paul uses is one that would have been used in ship harbors to describe ships that have had too much cargo placed on them and they begin to sink because they are overloaded. Uh, he actually suggests that a fair translation of this would also be, we were indescribably beyond the limits of our power, brought down into the depths. Paul says, I, I don't want you to be mistaken or uninformed or unaware of the fact that when I was in Asia, I was like a ship that had been so overloaded that it began to sink. This is unflinchingly honest. And if it's true of an apostle of Jesus Christ who wrote 13 out of the 27 books in the New Testament, why would we think that it won't be true for us, that there won't be times where we are so burdened beyond our ability to endure that things seem hopeless? Now, many people have asked what could have possibly happened to bring Paul to this point. And the reality is Paul doesn't tell us, and and ultimately I think we'll see that it's a good thing that he doesn't tell us what happened. Uh, But there's a couple different speculations, and I I think some of them are better than others. Some people think that this thorn in Paul's flesh that he's going to talk about later in Corinthians, that that there was a flare-up, that the thorn was particularly thorny, if you will. Uh, And some people are going to say that that maybe Paul fell ill, and when he says despaired of life itself, it's because he's got a death prognosis. It doesn't look like he's going to pull through. I think probably the best understanding of what this is, and and it's speculation, is that Paul's referring to what happened in Acts chapter 19. Uh, In Acts 19, we read a little bit about Paul's evangelism in the city of Ephesus. And so he and his companions go into the city. They begin to preach the gospel. They see incredible returns, if you will. That's very businesslike, and I don't mean to sound businesslike. But but they see just incredible fruit. People are converted. uh, They're repenting. They're turning from idolatry. And this actually causes a problem in the local economy because there are people in the city of Ephesus whose profession is to make idols. And now that people are becoming Christians, they're not buying idols. And so they get a little bit upset about this. So there's a man named Demetrius who's a silversmith in Ephesus and he actually leads a riot. He leads a lynch mob into the city to find Paul and they keep chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, who is the God who he makes idols of that nobody will buy anymore. I mean, the modern equivalent would be if there was a radical outbreak of revival in the city of Tampa and the strip clubs begin to close one by one by one. Uh, that the, the gospel has gone forth in such power that the idols of the city are falling. And so ultimately, Paul survives. The riot is put down. But, but I think what happened with Paul here is he began to realize something that had always been true. Uh, at the moment of Paul's calling, uh, the Lord makes a very clear statement. I will teach you how much you must suffer for my name. And I think that at this point in Paul's life, he begins to realize that his commitment to the gospel is ultimately what's going to kill him. And that every city he goes to, it's going to be the same response. There'll be people who repent, and there'll be people who hate and revile and plot and scheme against him. And so he realizes he has been given the death sentence. He lives on borrowed time because the gospel of Jesus is offensive to the kingdoms of this world. But Paul doesn't actually tell us 
that that's exactly what it is. And I think actually the reason that Paul doesn't tell us is, is twofold, and I think it's a gift to us in a lot of ways. Last week we talked a little bit about the way that the church deals with suffering, or rather how we in the church deal with suffering, and there's kind of two equally opposite errors, and Paul will have none of it. The first that we discussed last week is that many of us are sitting in our chairs or in our pews or wherever you go on a Sunday morning, and we are falling apart inside, and we just don't tell anybody. We don't say anything. And so we deal with our suffering by compartmentalizing it. That is a lot of syllables. We deal with our suffering by setting it aside, and Sunday morning is different, and then we get in our car and we have a total meltdown, and nobody ever knows what we're walking through. And we see, and we saw last week, that this short circuits God's plan for how the church should work, that those who have suffered and been comforted by God should go to those who are now suffering and bring God's comfort to bear on them. And if nobody knows what you're going through, nobody can help you. Paul will have none of this. He says very clearly, I don't want you to be unaware of what happened in Asia. I lost the will to live. I despaired of life itself. I felt like I was given a death sentence. And and he's going to go on to say why that is. So that the Corinthians will help him by prayer. He goes to them and says, I don't want you to be unaware of what I experienced. And would you help me by prayer? Would you pray for me? Just know that people can't pray for you unless they actually know what to pray for. I guess they could be vague. But it would be great to be specific. And this isn't an appeal for you to tell everything to everyone about every detail of your life. But there is something to be said for honesty in the middle of our pain. That's our first problem, is that very often we just don't say anything. But the other dilemma is the equally opposite problem, and I have dubbed this the Taylor Swift dilemma. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Tay-Tay. She is wonderful. I actually love Tay-Tay so much that I've been collecting the Polaroids that come with the special edition of her 1989 record. If you don't want those, give them to me. I'm like 15 short of completing the collection. But we talked about this at our New People dinner on Thursday, and some of you were there. What is Taylor Swift known for now? She's the girl who breaks up with somebody, and then she journals her pain in her songs. She is utterly defined by her suffering, so much so that it's really impossible to know Taylor Swift outside of it, right? And anytime she begins to date somebody, the tabloids start circulating, and they say, wonder what songs on the new record are going to be about this guy when this doesn't work out because she has seen fit to take her suffering and make it a defining feature of her life. I think part of the reason that Paul doesn't mention what it is he went through is that he doesn't want to be defined by his pain. He wants to be defined by God's faithfulness in the midst of it. He doesn't want to be defined by what's gone wrong in his life. He wants to be defined by how God has used the wrong turns in his life ultimately for his good and for his glory. But we love to take our pain and wear it as a badge of honor and carry it long past its expiration date. I remember a number of years ago, I was on one of the first tours that I ever did, and I was in this trashy van with no air conditioning that just smelled like poop. And... Oh, fun memories. Um, And I was driving through Nashville with my friend Will, and Will had kind of mentioned to me some of his relational problems in the past. And for me, I went, oh, this is great, because I just had this terrible experience with a girl like two years ago that I've been carrying for my whole life. So... So yeah, this will be awesome. I can, get, I can get a pat on the back and some sympathy from Will. And so I recount to him my entire, you know, devastating story of lost love in high school or whatever. 
And I remember Will listening to it and saying, man, that's awful. How long ago did that happen? And I said, a year and a half, two years ago. And he said, wait, really? Yeah. Did you get over that crap, man? What's wrong with you? And I was mad at him at the time, right? Because it had, begun something, it had become something that I used to define myself by. Paul refuses to do that. In not describing what's happened, he doesn't want people to identify him with that. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't wounds that take a long time to heal. Loss, suffering, pain, depression, things that take decades to heal and that you never fully recover from, that you always carry those scars with you. But can we, rather than being defined by our pain, be defined by God's faithfulness in the midst of it? Because that's what Paul wants. And so he goes on. In verse 9, he says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is really an interesting statement because if you needed further evidence that God doesn't just give you more than you can handle, you really just have to move to the next verse. Not only has he given Paul more than he can handle, but he's given Paul more than he can handle for an explicit purpose. In fact, it seems as though God is always in the business of giving people more than they can handle. Always. You can see this in the testimony of all of Scripture. Abraham and Sarah, the father, of the, the father and mother of the nation of Israel. He says to them in their old age, you're going to have a child. They laugh, rightfully so, because they're all dried up as far as children go. Man. <laughs> the danger of giving me a microphone. It's terrifying. Um, they, they laugh at this. It's impossible. It is biologically not possible for people in such a state of old age to give birth to children. They've been given the death sentence. But God has done this for a purpose. You move on to the nation of Israel. In slavery, uh, under the heavy yoke of a power that is infinitely stronger than them in the nation of Egypt. There is no hope. They have been given the death sentence. They will be condemned to servitude for the rest of their lives. But yet, God has done this for a purpose so that Israel would know that their deliverance has not come by their own hand. Yet again, Israel's led into the wilderness, into the land of Canaan, the land God has promised to give Israel. They send out the spies. The spies come back and say, there's no way. These are fortified cities. There's some real tall people around here. We don't have uh, the numbers to take these men. The reality is that they don't. They've been given the death sentence. There's no way that on their own strength they will accomplish these things. God has brought them to this insurmountable wall so that they would know that they will scale that wall not by their own power but by his grace. Yet again, Gideon leads an army of men against an invading force vastly superior and time and time again, God says, I need you to cut another 100 people out of your army, cut another 500 people out of your army. Looks like you need less people to conquer this invading force that's triple your size, down to 300. Why? Because God is always in the business of burdening people beyond what they can stand so that they know that they do not stand by their own strength. And that if there is victory, it's not by their own hand. One of my favorite books, you're going to hear me quote it 600 times if you sit in this ministry for even three weeks, uh, is Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan when he's in prison. And there's a line in Pilgrim's Progress that has stuck with me ever since I read it for the first time. Uh, One person is asked how he makes it along his journey, and he says, it is my duty 
to distrust my own ability so that I might rely on him who is stronger than all. This is what Paul says. Not only did God give me more than I could handle, he did so with a purpose so that I would not rely on my own strength but that I would rely on the one who can raise the dead. I felt I had been given a sentence of death which forces me to rely not on myself but on the one who can, in fact, raise the dead. So let me say something that is going to seem counterintuitive to you because many of you might be in the middle of something like this. You hear Paul's words and you say, I can empathize with this. My circumstances, my experience, my relationships, uh, the way that, that my family is going, it feels insurmountable. It feels impossible to overcome. It is a death sentence to me in the way that it stands like a monolith and a black cloud over the whole of my life. You hear Paul's words and you say, I get that. I'm going to say something that sounds maybe a little counterintuitive, and it's this. You have been given a gift by God that none of us want but all of us need, and it is to be freed of the naive superstition that any of us is an island that accomplishes anything by our own power and our own strength. None of us want this. None of us relish this. None of us celebrate this. But, but many of us, all of us at some point, but many of us now find ourselves here where Paul was, where there is just no way out. And I think um, J.R.R. Tolkien explains the situation so well. There's a scene in The Return of the King where Gandalf and uh, Pippin are sitting on a tower overlooking a battle and Pippin says to Gandalf, is there any hope? And Gandalf says, there was never any hope. There's only a fool's hope. You may not know this, but Tolkien was a Christian and his hope, I think, was to point people to what Paul said in a previous letter to the Corinthians that in the midst of this fool's hope, God uses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Many Christians look at the state of our world, especially Western civilization, and they see it hurtling towards secularism. And, and they say that America is quickly no longer be, or moving out of being a Christian nation. There's some debate as to whether America was ever truly a Christian nation, but let's set that aside for a moment. We look at the diminishing voice of Christians in the world. We look at the fact that the person who most Christians are voting for is definitely not a Christian. That's the only political thing I'm going to say. We look at these things, and it would be easy for us to despair. But to despair in the face of insurmountable odds is to miss the fact that God has always been in the business of insurmountable odds so that his people would know that it is by his hand that they overcome and not by their own. And as you find yourself in these situations, this is Paul's hope for you in sharing it with us through this letter is that you would recognize that even when you feel that you have been crushed to the point of death, we are not simply followers of a God who makes our life better. We are followers of God who raises the dead to life. And Paul goes on. And he means for this letter to be read aloud, I should add. He says uh, this, that this sentence of death uh, was meant to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He, He means for people to hear this because there's a repetition here that you may have missed the first time through. 
He has delivered us. He will deliver us. And he will deliver us again. If you find yourself in the middle of one of these seasons, can I plead with you? Find every opportunity to remind yourself of the faithfulness of God. Remind yourself of his deeds throughout history. It's part of the reason that we read scripture so much in this service. It's so that you would be reminded of what God has done throughout history. Again and again, delivering a people from Egypt, delivering a people into the land of Canaan, delivering a people out of bondage and back to the kingdom, delivering his sons and daughters from the slavery of sin. Remind yourself, preach to yourself again and again and again, he has delivered me, he will deliver me, he will deliver me again. Over and over and over again, be reminded of this truth. But notice, I think this is so important that Paul says he has delivered us from such deadly peril he will deliver us on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us. Ultimately, Paul's hope in the middle of whatever he's experiencing is that God will deliver him from it. At least that's a part of his hope. But the fullness of Paul's hope is not in a change of circumstances. He doesn't say on a better tomorrow I have set my hope. No, he says on him. Listen, the Christian hope is not just that things get better. The Christian hope is that at the end of all things, Jesus makes them new. Can I plead with you? In our day and age, where our joy, and I'm so guilty of this, where my joy is bound up in my circumstances, can I plead with you to set your hope on something more sure and more steady? Paul says, on him I have set my hope that he will deliver us. And whether he delivers us or he delivers Paul through his continued living or he delivers Paul through the resurrection of the dead at the end of time, his hope is not his circumstance. His hope is in a person and that is the person of the Son of God. And so as we walk through difficulty, we are not as those who labor without hope. But our hope is not in a better tomorrow. Our hope is in a new heavens and a new earth brought by our king upon whom we have set our hope. Let's pray. Oh, Father, there are many difficulties in this life and you are aware of all of them. And Lord, we trust that there will come a day where they will be no more and you will wipe the tears from our eyes. But for now, Lord, we find ourselves beset in so many ways. God, I pray that we would not waste this gift that you give us of difficulty. Lord, but that rather, in the middle of this difficulty, it would force us to take our eyes off of ourselves and our own abilities and to set them upon you who are stronger than all. Lord, I pray that our hope would not just be in that things would be better tomorrow, but that you would make all things new. Lord, I pray that our hope would not be in circumstances, but it would be in the person and the work of your son. Lord, I pray now, as we come to your table, that you would remind us that it is a table of hope as we look forward to what Jesus will continue to do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're a Christian and you are walking well with the Lord, we'd invite you now to take communion. Um, We give you a few minutes to make sure you are right with God. Examine yourself. There's no shame in taking a week off or sitting one out. I've done it before, and I think it's a mark of maturity to do that.
But if you do feel that you're walking well, Kevin and Jason are going to have the elements on either side of me. You can come grab the bread and the grape juice. We ask that you hold on to it. We'll take communion together. This time is yours.